0: Physics world.
1: Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Gloucester and in this episode we're going to be hearing about how political wranglings between the UK and the European Union have been affecting UK science. We'll hear from someone who has been advising the government on their science and research strategy and we'll hear from two researchers whose work has been significantly affected by this political situation. Way back in June 2016 The UK voted to leave the European Union in a move which has been tagged as Brexit. To say it's been divisive before and after the vote is something of an understatement. The vote itself was very close, just 52% against 48%, voting to leave the collaboration that is the European Union. With the politicians supporting Brexit, claiming that they would be able to take back control It wasn't exactly clear to many people what Brexit meant, we were simply told that Brexit means Brexit. This idea of taking back control, though, and this idea of collaboration, is something that's key to science and UK research, as we'll find in this podcast. Horizon Europe is the European Union's research and innovation funding programme due to run until 2027. It has a budget of €95.5 billion, just under that in dollars, and, as it currently stands, just under £83 billion. That money is divided among the EU's 27 member states and 14 associate nations. Horizon Europe officially began in 2021, and at the end of that year... It was agreed that the UK would become an associate member as part of the trade deal between the UK and the European Union. But that agreement has become somewhat embroiled in the negotiations about how trade works in Northern Ireland, something quite different and far removed from science research. As we'll hear, as the politicians argue and debate, scientists are left in something of a limbo, with the finances also on hold. But first, I wanted to get a sense of how these political wranglings have been affecting scientists themselves. Here's Rachel Armstrong.
2: I'm Professor of Regenerative Architecture at KU Leuven, uh, which is based in Belgium. It's one of the biggest, but the oldest university there. And uh, what I do is I um, am teaching architecture students about the future of the built environment thinking about next generation sustainability and in order to do that uh, i participate in european projects so often as a coordinator where i'm working in very ambitious uh, multidisciplinary teams uh, that include physicists engineers biologists um, uh, urbanists um ICT specialists uh companies and NGOs um so it's 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 a it's a mix of inputs and i think the amazing thing of being part of a european union project which is absolutely priceless is intercultural exchange so that people coming from different backgrounds using uh, different languages, different perspectives, different myth- mythologies, different ambitions in terms of, uh, you, you know, their their own contributions uh, is incredibly enriching just from a very personal perspective. And so it's really a very healthy, diverse network where I think we find a lot of complementarity. And even when we write unsuccessful bids, the learning that goes on in the very process of doing that is um, uh, incredibly um, personally uh, develop. You know, the, the personal development that that goes into that is, uh, uh, you know, beyond anything that I can get out of doing an online course in something or writing something on my own. So I feel incredibly lucky to be participating in this in this kind of work. Um, and I think that um, in terms of uh, the, the partnerships um, and um, the knowledge that can be transferred um, out of these conversations uh, is really where we need to be in terms of facing the big challenges that we, we, we find ourselves right in the middle of right now.
1: Before we get into that, can you just tell me a bit more about your research?
2: So the built environment contributes 40% to total global uh, carbon emissions, um, which comprises um, embodied carbon, which is in the building, and then uh, the building operation, so that using energy, using resources in order to conduct the activities of, of daily life. And at the moment, the built environment works on a paradigm that's been set by modern industrial development, which is resource consumptive. It imagines that innovation can be conducted without any limits on energy consumption so that energy in some ways becomes the solution to every problem that we have, from climbing a set of stairs to cooling our food, to um, you know, moving around um, a, a space so that uh, so that there 's a very particular kind of innovation that we have become habituated to um, and that these paradigms are really holding us in a situation of more of the same, but trying to mitigate some of the damage by being a little bit more thoughtful about when and how we use things, which often means that the weakest and poorest members of society end up as being the ones that go without, rather than the uh, people that have become wealthy um, from these exploitative systems. So the ambition that we have in the built environment is really how are we going to change the fundamental paradigms uh, that that, that support our urban existence so that we can be almost um, unconsciously aware of better resource use, smarter relationships with the obligatory need for us to consume things. We're living creatures. We're not closed systems. We have a metabolism and we do need to consume, but we need Apparatuses and devices that help our activities of daily living to do so in a way that is enlivening for our environment and not uh, fundamentally destructive. So, in order to create that change, we need ambitious groups of, of thinkers coming from multiple dis, uh, disciplines that can simultaneously think about the science that's underpinning the emerging technologies that can help us do this. So can we have more biologically compatible and discursive forms of technology that help us negotiate resource circularity rather than demand uh, certain kinds of resources? But we also need the social and cultural interfaces that help us relate to and understand how to use these technologies and how we can... Um, develop an economics, the, the distribution of resource that comes from the incorporation of these new technologies and the social systems that emerge from them, to actually make a fairer society, so that we're not leaving poor and uh, marginalised people um, uh, at the um, uh, at the at the very edges of, of what might be considered to be a good livable. Um, existence on a planet that is incredibly stressed and undergoing multiple environmental catastrophes.
1: I didn't want this podcast to be entirely about the political situation, so I hope you don't mind that we're just sharing some of the important and interesting research. But also, this podcast is about the impact of Brexit. Here's Rachel again.
2: Well, in 2016, I was actually at a, a workshop at the Robert Rauschenberg uh, Foundation, working with a team of wonderful uh, thinkers and creative artists, um, thinking about our responses to climate change. It was called the Rising Waters Confab, um, and it was led by an artist called Buster Simpson. And whilst I was out there, I was hearing... Um, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of the Brexit referendum because I'd, I'd paid almost no attention to politics until that point, because effectively, you know, I'd grown up in a society where, yes, there was the Thatcher years, and um, yes, we had a Labour government then followed by another Conservative government, but on the whole, it felt like there were swings and balances in, in, in place, that if we had too much of looking after the economy, then another movement came along that started to look after people. Um, so I I'd, I'd felt fairly comfortable about the political situation in the UK. That changed in 2016, and I remember being asked by the director of the... Um, Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, are you not worried about this Brexit referendum? And I completely dismissed it. I said, oh, don't be silly. You know, it's it's uh, it's a, a group of right wingers that are making a lot of fuss about the European Union. The majority of people in the UK are not right. That right wing. And um, I'm, you know, when there's the referendum, um, I'm sure that most people will want to be uh, part of a European community. Uh, by this time, I'd already started the uh, Living Architecture project, which was the first um, uh, EU project that I coordinated. I'd been part of other projects before then. This was the first that I coordinated. And as I returned to the UK and the implications of this. Brexit started to unfold, and I realised that the um, uh, the second referendum wasn't coming, and that um, the hostilities um, about um, the, the nationalistic hostilities that were being enacted, you know, in the media, um, in conversations, um, uh, you know, things that had had really been dealt with and suppressed socially. You know, Britain was multicultural and, 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 and didn't really like this kind of white nationalism. Um, but now it started to, to, to show its, its, its kind of ugly face and seemed to be given space to grow. So uh, figures like Nigel Farage uh, were incredibly divisive. And um, the irritation that I felt, you know, with the promotion of these extreme points of views as, as if this was part of a normal conversation really started to jar. And the government didn't seem to be putting any of this back in its box. And by the time that we reached 2019, I had made a firm decision that the incredible experiences and relationships and the future of my own research and personal development was now at stake because the government seemed to be playing games um, with, you know, what Brexit actually meant. Um, And that made it impossible for me to plan. I didn't know if we were going to be an associated country, whether we weren't going to have any part at all in the Horizon Europe uh, projects. Um, or what my status as an international researcher was going to be. And I also wanted to protect um, the teams of people that um, I'd already started to work with on this uh, journey as a coordinator. Um, So 2019 was a tipping point for me, um, where the government took a turn, where it looked like we were going to go for the hardest possible imaginable Brexit. We still didn't really know what that meant. And um, I just thought, I really can't risk this. I, I can't risk the damage to uh, my career, my relationships, and also to the, the the future of the work that I wanted to be able to um, develop. Uh, because um, having then worked, you know, we pretty much completed the uh, Living Architecture Project in 2019 then, Um and there were opportunities to roll on some of these developments. And the Living Architecture Project, just to put it in the context of the work I was doing, um, it was a, a platform that was really looking to take us off fossil fuel dependency, working on a lower energy understanding of a household, uh, installing a circular economy through a series of, of bioreactors. Uh, uh, So microbial fuel cells and um, uh, photobioreactors using microorganisms to harvest energy from um, light and household waste um, and reuse that in creative ways as if it's been transformed through the soil um, back in the household. And so the developments in this, I mean, it was a challenge to get through the project. It was ambitious. Uh, It did require us to work through some... uh, Logical and um, practical knots, but we got there, and I think in 2019 we really felt like we were an integrated team. Um, so, so this was very important to me. To in order to be able to address the big challenges that we were facing, um, that I needed a research platform that would enable this and wouldn't become protectionist and and kind of constrain uh, British researchers only to working with British um uh partners or um to be on the receiving end of invitations from european partners that were then the coordinators putting together their vision of um the future of our societies and you know how we were going to tackle um things like climate change so that we we would be followers and and not visionaries in this you, you know in in the most incredible um research fund i think in in, in the world uh, there is there is no other fund um that, that we have access to um like the european union's horizon europe program and i wanted to be part of that that much that yes i decided um to look for a a, a job abroad um and very fortunately i landed one at, at cahoe leuven I, I have i have 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 absolutely no regrets in doing that and um yeah, I, I, and, and I'm here to help my, my British collaborators as well.
1: We'll come back to Rachel and both the desire and difficulties of involving the UK scientists later in the podcast. It's safe to say that Brexit has been politically damaging to individuals, not least to consecutive prime ministers. The Conservative Prime Minister, David Cameron, who announced that the referendum on Brexit would take place and was still Prime Minister when the results came in, resigned on the back of those results. His successor, also the Conservative, Theresa May, resigned after not being able to get a Brexit deal through Parliament. She was replaced by another Conservative Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, whose tenure as Prime Minister ended recently after a series of scandals. He had promised an oven-ready deal for Brexit, which would just need to be ratified. The fact that that wasn't quite true is where these difficulties for Horizon Europe and UK scientists are centred. From University College London, here's Professor Graham Reed, who's been advising the government on their UK science policy.
3: I'm Professor of Science and Research Policy at UCL, and I've taken an interest in the, the impact of Brexit, on research and innovation since uh, before the uh, referendum on uh, EU membership, in fact. And um, so I've been, uh, I've worked as an advisor to the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee during a couple of inquiries on Brexit. And uh, together with Sir Adrian Smith, I wrote a report for the science minister of the day about what the UK should do in the event that we do not associate with Horizon Europe. So this has been a a long-standing uh, point of interest for me.
1: Professor Graham Reid studied physics at Robert Gordon University and then began his career at the National Engineering Laboratory, where he worked for almost 10 years. I wondered how it worked when you are advising the government and the House of Lords.
3: Yeah, so with the House of Lords, I was asked by the the House of Lords Committee to uh, help them develop an inquiry into the UK's relationship with the EU on science. So I... If you watch these parliamentary committees on television, you see a sort of horseshoe-shaped table with committee members around it and then some poor soul at the end of the horseshoe who's being grilled. Uh, Well, I sat along with the committee on that horseshoe table, but I was there to advise the chairman and the committee members on which witnesses should be called to give evidence what sort of questions they should be asked and how to make sense of the sort of material that was coming in. Um, So at no time was I a member of the House of Lords but I did get you know it was a marvellous insight into the back office of Parliament. Tell me a bit about your insight then what did you find out? That committee decided before the inquiry began that it was not going to be partisan on the question it wanted to discover the evidence rather than try to reach a view on whether or not the uk should associate with horizon europe there was lots of debate about that there were loads of opinions bashing about the place but it was actually quite light on evidence and so they they scrutinized both quantitative and qualitative evidence about what the UK's relationship with the EU actually is on science. Um, and that proved more complicated than I had imagined. Um, the thing that, imp- well, there were two things that impressed me about that experience. The first was the level of expertise on the committee, which was frankly awesome. Um, there were highly distinguished people with a mixture of career backgrounds some of them academic some of them industrial some of them financial uh, but a huge body of expertise and the other thing that struck me about that committee was that I, I spent months working with them on this inquiry and I would say for for most of them to this day, I don't know where they stand on the EU because they just left that outside the door. They, they stuck to rigorous evidence gathering and appraisal. And I was, I was really taken by how much they were able to leave the politics outside the door when they did the inquiry. In
1: my conversations around this topic, I found that that's certainly not true for everybody. And I asked Professor Graham Reed what his perception is of this relationship.
3: The, the first thing I'd have to say is that any discussion about this tends to provoke quite strong emotional responses. It's very difficult to have a dispassionate, objective discussion about something that is so emotional in nature. Almost all the language that's used is pejorative. Uh, whether whether it's meant to be or not, um, and the academic community have from the outset been almost unanimous in their desire for the UK to remain an EU member, and after the UK left, they be, they became unanimous in a desire for the uk to associate with horizon europe and that's a mixture of um pragmatic career experience in partnerships with european uh, scientific institutions and personal political dispositions about the uk's relationship with the eu Um, so i i've said to people before it's pretty difficult to get a bunch of academics to agree on anything. Um, and, and here is a topic where you will find more or less universal agreement that has been sustained over a period of six years. So it's, quite, it's got that distinctive characteristic
1: of pulling the whole academic community together into one place. It suggests to me if the whole of the academic community pretty much thinks it's the right thing to do, the likelihood is it's the right thing to do.
3: Eh? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do from the com- perspective of the academic community, but that's not the only perspective on the decision, and therein lies the problem. Horizon Europe is different to the previous European programmes, and our relationship is different with with Europe. So under the terms of the deal that was struck in 2019 when we left the European Union, any participation in Horizon Europe would be um, on sort of one pound going into Europe and one pound coming back out again. So the UK would not make a profit or a loss from our participation. So the cost of participation would be paid for by the UK government. And for the first time ever, that cost would be tensioned against other ways of spending the money. So for 40 years, participation in framework programs and things was more or less free money. You know, you you joined and the money just flowed back out again. Because it was paid for as part of the UK's subscription to the EU. It was all covered in our annual subscription bill. Now, if we were to associate, the cost would have to be paid for in a discrete package. So you would be asking ministers to send a cheque to Brussels for about £2,000 million a year which is money that can't then be spent on something else. So the, so the politics of this has changed profoundly in a way that's not always recognised in the discussion about
1: Horizon Europe. Okay, so that's interesting. So essentially, the the act of Brexit and the deal that happened means... That we're not arguing about the same thing anymore, and we're not going to go back on that. Really, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, so, what what can we do then? What, is there a replacement? About, about a year ago, um, the the
3: government committed to uh, a very large sum of money, which would be made available for uk alternatives to horizon Europe in the event that we do not associate when I say a large amount of money you know it's it's about two thousand million pounds a year so this is this is a lot of money uh, that money can either be used to pay for association in which case we send the money to brussels and then it comes back to us through our participation in european programs or and it's an or that same money can be used for some program that is run out of the uk for international collaboration Um, and that decision as to whether or not we go into to to horizon or do a domestic alternative that decision hasn't yet been reached but it is it, there are signs that it's coming to a head in
1: any direction do you, can
3: you give me a stare on that um right so yeah i mean that's there's there's your key question um and you know i think if if I was to guess at the direction, then my guess would be out of date by the time this podcast was posted, <laughs> um, because it keeps flip flopping <laughs> around. But let me give you some of the component parts of this, some of the some of the politics. Um, when we left the EU, part of the agreement was that the UK would associate with Horizon Europe. That was actually baked into the deal we did with Brussels. But there were lots of other things that were baked into that deal as well including some arrangements for northern ireland now brussels argues that we have broken the deal on northern ireland and we argue that brussels has broken the deal on horizon europe so each is <laughs> accusing the other of breaking the deal on a different bit um, there are formal proceedings underway uh, at the moment, where you know Brussels is sort of uh, taking proceedings against the UK on Northern Ireland, and we're taking proceedings against Brussels on on Horizon Europe. So you know it's it, it, you know this relationship is quite delicate. Um, Prime Minister Liz Truss. Uh, and business secretary jacob rees mogg who of course is now the secretary of state responsible for the science budget um, you know they've both got had quite clearly expressed views on europe and they will be key decision makers um, so you can you can deduce from that what you will um uh with with the trust government taking shape um I won't be surprised if this gets brought to a head. It's been lingering for far too long. It needs to be resolved. We're in the worst of all possible positions at the moment where we're neither in EU programmes nor are we spending the available money on a domestic alternative. The money's just sitting there in a treasury bank account
1: where it's doing no use for anyone. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is a slightly... um... A person who divides opinion, should we say? Um, people have differing views on him. He is, uh, as I understand it, minister for business, energy, and industrial strategy. How does the science budget fit into into that? The science budget, like any other block
3: of public spending, is its it, its size is determined by the treasury. And its administration is determined by a government department. And, in, and for many years, the science budget has been uh, the responsibility of the business department. And the business department has taken on lots of different shapes, and there's been, you know, the names have changed and all the rest of it, but actually, the, that budget sits in the business department and they then hand it over to ukri and to uh the to of uh, the, 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 the to, to other institutions um but the secretary of state who's responsible for the science budget is now jacob rees mogg as of a day or two ago um, so he's a big player in this he will i, I imagine he will uh, have uh a junior minister, the science minister, who will have a closer day-to-day oversight. But at cabinet level, at that key decision-making level, it will be uh, the Secretary of State. And something like Horizon Association is sufficiently complicated and high-profile and expensive for it to, I think, be decided at
1: cabinet level. In the Physics World magazine this month, and online, you'll find an article by Michael Allen, entitled, UK Science Dips Below the Horizon. And you can find much more about this topic there, including learning that Lord John Krebs who co-authored a report in early August from the House of Lords Science Technology Committee, said that the lack of clear strategy to realise the government's ambition to make the UK a technology and science global superpower felt a little like setting off on a marathon with your shoelaces tied together, and cautioned that the danger was that the UK would become a bureaucracy superpower rather than a science superpower. Let's get back to some actual science, shall we? Here's Karen Kirby.
0: I lead the proton therapy research work in Manchester between the University of Manchester and the Christie NHS Foundation Trust. The role was set up in 2015 when I joined um, the group and the idea was um, the NHS had invested over £250 in proton therapy. NHS doesn't fund research and therefore my job was to build up a research capability in Manchester in the clinical proton therapy centre um, to, you know, develop a research activity, which would basically keep the NHS at the cutting edge. So Proton therapy is a type of radiotherapy. It's part of the toolbox. And it the way it goes, the way protons stop in matter means that they deposit l- less damage as they go in. And then they come to a stop with something called the Bragg Peak so the idea is so you put most of the damage into the tumour which you want to kill and you put less damage into the surrounding healthy tissue um, which you don't want to damage because that causes side effects in patients. Is it just people in Manchester who are doing this research? Effectively we act as a national centre so we were really lucky so the NHS so three of the rooms are used as clinical gantries and treat patients every day and the fourth room the Christie Charity um raised money in the northwest predominantly and so we have a wonderful research room so we can emulate the clinical beam in the research room but we don't use it to treat patients but we can effectively um, do research work on clinical beams so we can do biology we can do physics we can do engineering and the whole idea is that that research then feeds into a pipeline that goes into the clinic um, so that we can benefit patients we have um, a sister center in london which opened last December um and so we work with people in london they don't have they have a um a gantry like the one that's used to treat patients we have a bespoke research room they do research as well
1: obviously. could you tell me a bit about uh, the sort of patients who might be benefiting from this
0: so one of the um, major um reasons for proton therapy is for pediatrics and teenage and young adults so that's from naught all the way up to 25, 26. And that's because because protons put in less damage into the surrounding healthy tissue. Obviously, any type of radiation can um, lead to secondary cancers later in life. Um, If you put less damage in, there's less chance of secondary malignancies. And therefore, if you're... So, for example, if you're treated and you're 70, the uh, secondary cancers 30 years later on is less of a concern to you. If you're 10... Secondary cancers when you're 40 is a big concern. So a lot of the work is on um, paediatric and teenage and young adults. But also we're treating really difficult to treat tumours that lie close to critical organs. So, for example, those of the brain and spine, because the way protons stop is they have a sharp um, end. So X-rays go straight through the bodies. Protons actually stop at the tumour. And therefore, you can treat closer to critical organs. Has Brexit changed this at all? Yeah, Brexit's changed it quite a bit. So one of the things is that across Europe, I think something like two billion has been spent on proton therapy. So most countries in Europe have a proton therapy centre or a number of them. And um, one of the projects I lead is um, a project to integrate research in proton therapy centres across Europe. Um, And that's been really useful. We've all worked together. Um, And my whole career, I've had European projects where I've worked with colleagues across Europe. And by pooling your resources and by pooling your expertise, you know, the sum is greater than the constituent parts. And it's been one of those things. So something like proton therapy, it's not just physicists. Um, It's physicists, it's engineers, it's clinicians, it's biologists, it's health economists. So you need a big multidisciplinary team of people, um, all different sorts of aspects, because it's, you know, it's a multidisciplinary question. And if we're going to make sure that we keep, the technology right at the cutting edge. So, you know, we're delivering the best cures for patients. You need all of those streams of expertise coming into it. Also, if you're treating rarer cancers, you get less, you know, no one country gets that many cases. So you want to pool the resources there. And it's it's just a very good way of working together. But Brexit makes that impossible? or It doesn't make it impossible. But, for example, I... Um, I've led a number of projects in my time and I quite like leading projects. I suppose if I'm going to be a a little bit arrogant, I think I'm quite good at doing it. Um, And pulling those projects together and looking and building networks of people, bringing that together is something I've done before. We can't do that. Um, Well, we can do it, but we can't be the leaders of the project. So you can put in all the work And then you hand it over to someone else. You know, you're always looking at projects at the moment. You can be an associate partner. There is a route in through um, <clears throat> Innovate UK. We can. You get some of the money back from the government, but you, you then have to wait to make sure that you're on the right list. You know, it's, it's not the way it was done before. And you're always, you're sort of, you're a bit of an also-run like, I'm in a fortunate position that people want to work with us, but I do know of other people who have said, actually people are, you know, European partners are basically saying, oh, it's too much bother to work with the UK. It hasn't happened to me, but I have heard of cases. Okay. So it, it just makes, instead of being able to effectively look at all of the funding calls and, uh, you know, equate Horizon Europe along with everything else and it may be the right way of doing things, We're now in a position where we're sort of second class citizens. And, you know, you're hoping someone will invite you into your proposal. Or you basically say, look, I'll do all the work and then I'll hand it over to someone else, which, you know, effectively means it's led from another country, all the work isn't seen. Um, it's very altruistic but you can imagine when universities look at um, adding up the pennies and you know what you've actually done you'll be they'll say well you didn't really lead it because it's down to somebody else so you know and what do I advise other staff to do do I advise my younger staff that um, you know the way to do is to lead a, a European project probably not they're much better going for something else because their career progression will also depend on things like that,
1: that. kind of second class citizen thing. Is that really as a result of the kind of the bureaucracy that's been involved around Brexit and and what's been happening politically, or is it actually just where we are anyway?
0: Um, I think pre Brexit um, we were very much part of Europe. You know, science has always been, and I've I, to be honest. Personally, I feel more European than I feel British. Um, and I've apologised for my country more times than I've ever done in the past three years. You know, it's it's a change. And we're, you know, I talk to people about European projects. And, you ba- and they basically said, well, are you going to sign? You know, is the UK government going to sign? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, but you're getting to the point now of saying, I think you ought to make the assumption that they won't because, you know, we haven't heard anything. We were promised they would. Um, and everything is so unsure at the moment. You know, it's probably better if you assume that they we won't rather than assuming that we will. If we will, it, if we do, it would be fantastic. But I think it's that uncertainty. and. I am sure we are further down the list. You know, we're being used a bit as a, the Horizon Europe is being used a little bit politically. Um, and it's unfortunate. But, you know, you look at COVID and did all the breakthroughs in COVID come from just British funded science or was this the collaboration across Europe and things like that? No. Um, I think people have forgotten that. I think a lot of the breakthroughs that have come forward in the past 40 years are helped by being part of Europe. You know, we've worked together with our European colleagues. British science is very strong.
1: Before Brexit, the UK's arrangement was that when they put money into Horizon, they actually ended up getting more back with brexit wiping out that positive position for the uk i asked professor graham reed what the pros and cons are for the two routes facing the government now
3: if you do it through the eu then you're building on 40 years of collaborations and partnerships so you've got a 40-year investment in these partnerships. And, and, and doing it through Europe means that you, you take that 40-year history and you add another layer. The other advantage of doing it through Europe is that the EU... The, I mean, the, what, what is Horizon? Horizon is a protocol which means that if you want to set up a project... Lots of the deal is already done. You don't start from scratch. You actually lift a rule book off the shelf that has got lots of the deal done, and then you customise it around the interests of your individual project and individual partners. So it's relatively easy to form an international collaboration. Uh, You've got lots of networks of people that have been working together, um, um, and uh, so off you go. And I think that that's you know it's there are some very elegant uh, funding instruments within the Horizon portfolio. There are other funding instruments that don't work terribly well for the UK. Um, and that takes us to the disadvantage, because the disadvantage is that this is this is a, an arrangement that is a, a compromise between twenty-seven EU member states. Uh, and it's it's designed around the interests of the EU. So if you look at a UK alternative, then the advantage is that we can optimize it around UK interests, rather than have compromises at every turn. We can make it global, so it's it's uh, it's geographic emphasis and all the sort of partnerships that we build can be you, you start with a map of the world rather than having a sort of EU plus people from other places the, the, the starting point is, is different um, and that optimizing around UK interests is a big deal because we, we really can make this work for the UK. However it's it means starting from scratch. We don't have anything. Um, So, and starting from scratch with something of this scale is not trivial. I mean, this is a big thing to start from scratch. So, it's going to require a period of transition that will cost money. You know, you cannot switch out of Horizon into a standalone scheme just with the click of fingers. This is going to be an expensive and time consuming thing and that is a significant disadvantage balanced against the advantage of having something that would be optimised around the the UK interest.
1: That idea of a global superpower would surely include the European Union and the hope would be that collaborations between UK scientists and EU scientists would continue in a productive way the way they have until Brexit. I asked Professor Rachel Armstrong how now she's based in the EU in Belgium She views her UK colleagues.
2: I'm committed to using UK researchers, but it puts you in a weak position as a coordinator because you're having to um, shore up your consortium so that if the UK government does something stupid, like um, invokes Article 16, (laughs) um, then you're still able to complete your project so th- that is that is a concern the other thing that uh, you know i've been in discussion with the um uh, let's say the coordination administration um in the european partners and in my own institution um is the irritation um that is felt from the games that are being played that you know deadlines are being extended so for example uh, with the erc um, application. There were weeks and weeks of delay before people were notified of of, of their results uh, because of the uh, politics that were that were you know uh, you know afoot a- uh, between the UK and the and, and and the EU.
1: Excuse my brief interruption, but in June of this year, the European Research Council, the ERC, confirmed that 143 UK-based researchers. lose their grants from the ERC unless they relocated to a country in the European Union.
2: This is very destabilising for university relationships and it really makes um, you not want to involve um, British partners because unlike, let's say, Norwegian partners, which have a stable, you know, so they have an associated relationship with the programme, No problem with that. You know that they're associated. You know that they know their rules for engagement. But with the UK, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty and quite frankly, anything could happen. So if I didn't come from the UK and if I didn't have um, established great relationships with my uh, British colleagues, then I'll be honest with you, I would be reluctant to think about British partners, even if they were the best in the world. I'll be thinking second or third best will be good enough because I know that I can manage this project. I know that I can get to the end of it without some great administrative disaster.
1: The uncertainty of that relationship between the UK and the EU in terms of Horizon Europe and science research more widely is clearly a source of great concern for the scientists and it will obviously affect their research. For Karen Kirby's work, and for many other scientists, that research is key for people's
0: lives. How will that impact patients today? Probably not at all. How will that impact patients in five years' time? You know, we may not have done some of the clinical trials that we would do otherwise. We may not have done some of the studies of how things like proton interact with drug combinations. There will be discoveries that aren't made um and you know ultimately um if we stop now um and no research is done then you know across the board it's it's you know there will be there will be things that we would have discovered that we won't have discovered um and so it you know it's not it's not tomorrow um but for example some of the work that we're doing at the moment is on a new modality of modality where we actually the NHS Centre for Protons is brilliant at it and we deliver the dose at ultra high dose rates. That's in less than um less than a second. What that appears to do, although we've still got quite a lot of work to do on it, is to put even less damage into the healthy tissue and still kill the tumour. Now that means that you can start to be it's a it's this sort of paradigm change that you could move into where effectively you could treat even more tumours because there are still tumours that you can't treat with with protons just because although you could put enough dose into the tumour it's what would happen to the healthy tissue or that tumour might recur but you know an area like that if it's not funded because we've got to understand it's not safe to use to pay with patients at the moment because we don't know enough about it um there are, uh, i should Yeah, there have been some clinical trials where it's been used palliatively, very, very carefully um, in terms of on in extremities. It was used in um, arms and legs for painful bone metastases to reduce the pain. But if you were going to use it um, radically, you want to know a bit more about it. We need to do a bit more research. If there was none of the, you know, at the moment where we're getting some funding for that and, but if that funding stopped, um, you know, you can't do research without some money. You've got no people, no infrastructure. Um, running a research room costs money, um, especially at the moment, cost of electricity, running the cyclotron's on cheap. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's things like that. So it's all the infrastructure and it goes across the board you know there is so much research going on um and and it's it's not just the money it's the contacts you know if we don't have our colleagues in europe um we don't link in with them we're then we haven't got those synergies that come from working with people who've got similar equipment to us um but um you know we by working together, you effectively reduce the cost and get more benefits.
1: In an ideal world, what would happen
0: now? Oh, the government would sign the agreement. Like, ideal world, if I can have whatever I want, the government, we'd, we'd reverse the, that result on Brexit. But I, I suppose that's naive and that, that's not going to happen. But in an ideal world, what could help is the government signing the agreement so that the UK enters Horizon Europe in the same way as any other European partner. Um, it means, you know, that would... And that's, that's what we believed would happen. Um, that's what we were told. So, you know, that would be... That would help.
1: The uncertainty about how this relationship might work post-Brexit, the uncertainty about what the UK's new funding model looks like, is, as I say, at the root of quite a lot of this concern amongst the UK science research community. I put that to Professor Graham Reed.
3: I absolutely recognise the apprehension because what you're comparing is a well-understood and familiar European programme with an unknown UK alternative. So if you're, if you're comparing the familiar with the unknown, in that case, you know, the natural human reaction is to be apprehensive and, 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 and sceptical. So that doesn't surprise me at all. I think that that's an entirely rational uh, response. I think I would take issue with claims that the government doesn't do what it says it will do in science. Um, the um, the government, first of all, we have a, we've got a pretty high level of transparency in the way that the finances are announced at top level so the size of the science budget and it's uh, it, the way in which the, the, the pace at which it, the money is going to be released and its distribution among funding agencies is all in the public domain it's all scrutinised by parliament it's all scrutinised by the media um, and actually, you know, some people complain that there's too much documentation and scrutiny. Um, uh, so I'd say that um, that the, the 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 track record of spending the money that is announced is actually pretty good. Um, I mean, you know, there's there's a bit of fast footwork on sort of re-announcing things three times and all that sort of thing. But actually, if you look at the formal documents rather than the spin, I think the track record's pretty good. What worries me, and worries me quite a lot, is that if we continue to sit in this... uh, halfway house where we're not associating with horizon europe and we're not going ahead with plan b then we have billions of pounds that has been allocated to science but is not being spent on science and no reasonable finance ministry will allow huge amounts of public money to just sit there being unused and i do worry that there will come a point possibly as soon as next March at the end of the financial year, when the Treasury will say, well, hang on a minute, we we gave you billions of pounds in 2021, and you're still faffing about deciding whether you want to be in Europe or not. We're just going to have the money back, and we'll spend it on something to do with the cost of living crisis.
1: In researching this podcast, I read about and heard from scientists from EU countries who'd come to the UK before Brexit many years before it was even considered a possibility, who had felt compelled to leave as a result of that referendum. It's certainly true that the opinion of the scientists and the academic community is not the only argument in this story, but it seems a shame, to say the least, that a nearly, if not entirely, unanimous voice calling for associate status in the horizon could be ignored for the sake of political wranglings over trade agreements and the like. I imagine that's why it's such a key bargaining tip, though. I'm glad I'm not a politician, and I'm really glad that I'm not a politician who's got themselves into this particular situation. It is my hope, along with the vast majority of the academic community, that the political arguments and discussions will end with the UK having associate membership of the Horizon Europe Fund. Thank you very much to Professors Karen Kirby, Rachel Armstrong and Graham Reid for talking to me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast and we'll be back next month when I'm hoping we'll have a bit more fun exploring something to do with physics and sport. And thank you very much for listening.
2: Physics World